Hi everyone and welcome to episode 28 of Infraction. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today's case is a listener suggestion, so thanks for your suggestion, Melissa. Today we are covering the mysterious death of Ellen Greenberg. Ellen Greenberg was born to her parents, Sandra and Joshua Greenberg, on the 23rd of June, 1983, in New York. When Ellen was 11 years old, the family of three moved to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where she started achieving high grades at school and made lots of new friends. Upon graduating high school, she stayed in Pennsylvania and attended Penn State University, where she majored in communication. During her time at Penn State, she worked as a lionizer, which was the uni's name for helpers who showed football players and their parents around the campus on game days. Mm. She was incredibly sociable and smiley and absolutely loved her time at the university. Ellen had always had dreams of becoming a speech pathologist, hence her decision to major in communication. However, somewhere along the way, her future career plan changed as she realised that her real passion lay in teaching. Therefore, she undertook a night course at Temple University in order to get her teaching qualifications. Once she was qualified, she took a teaching job at Juanita Park Academy, a junior school in Philadelphia. In 2008, Ellen went on a blind date with a man her friend had set her up with. The man was Sam Goldberg, a TV producer, and the pair hit it off instantly. Their relationship blossomed quickly and friends say that Ellen was very in love with Sam and that the pair were incredibly happy. My God, who does that actually work for? Blind dates and three years later, (laughs) happy times. I know. It also actually worked for her parents because I think her parents met on a blind date as well. Fun fact. Oh, really? Um, So, um, yeah, so their relationship quickly blossomed and after three years of dating, Sam proposed to Ellen whilst they holidayed in Cali and Ellen was ecstatic. Things unfortunately started to change for Ellen, however, and she confided in her parents that she wanted to move back to Harrisburg and leave her job at the school. Her parents were understandably worried. They were so used to their daughter being happy and bubbly, they'd never seen this anxious and sad side to her before. They asked her to see a psychiatrist before giving up on her life in Philly to move back home, and Ellen agreed. After a couple of months, things started to seem to turn around for Ellen, and her parents stated that she seemed much more herself. On January 26, 2011, just several days after Ellen and Sam had sent their wedding save-the-dates out to their friends, a heavy snowstorm swept across Philadelphia. Reports came in stating that another blizzard was on its way, so Ellen was sent home from work early. She left the school, filled up her car with petrol, and then returned to the apartment she shared with Sam. Ellen's fiancé Sam was home when she got in, but around 4.45pm he left to work out at the gym that was situated in their apartment block. About 30 to 40 minutes later, he came back to the apartment and attempted to open the door. Confusingly, it appeared that it was locked from the inside. Sam banged loudly on the door and called to Ellen to come and unlock it, but there was no response from inside the apartment. Becoming increasingly more angry, Sam took his phone from out of his pocket and sent Ellen a series of text messages over a period of 22 minutes, with each text being slightly more annoyed and angry than the previous one. The series of text messages read, Hello. Open the door. What are you doing? I'm getting pissed. Hello. You better have an excuse. What the fuck? Ah, you have no idea. God, they sound quite threatening, don't they? Um, I think they sound quite angry, yeah. Especially the you better have an excuse and that you have no idea. That kind of sounds like almost like you have no idea what's coming to you type thing. Um, so yeah, getting more and more agitated that Ellen wasn't responding to his text or opening the door, 
Sam went downstairs to the apartment complex security desk and asked the security guard to either break down their apartment door or come and unlock it. There are mixed messages about what happened next, but most articles concurred that the security team were unable to help Sam as it was against their policy to break down apartment doors. <laughs> no shit. Uh, therefore, at around half six, Sam went back to their apartment and broke down the door himself. As he entered the apartment, he was met with a gruesome scene. Ellen was slumped in a seated position in the kitchen and almost everything around her was covered in blood. Sam got his phone out and called 911. He was instructed by the operator to perform CPR and so he went over to Ellen. It was only at this point, as he placed his hands on Ellen's chest to administer CPR, that he noticed a large knife stuck into her chest. Fuck. The police and paramedics arrived at the apartment and Ellen was pronounced dead at the scene. The scene inside the apartment was strange to officers. The blood was entirely limited to the kitchen. There was no signs of forced entry, no evidence that anyone had left the apartment from their sixth floor balcony. The snow on the balcony lay untouched. And, moreover, Ellen had no defensive wounds on her hands or arms. Ellen was found clutching a small white towel in one of her hands and her other hand was balled in a loose fist. In the kitchen sink there were two clean knives and to the right-hand side a fruit bowl sat half untouched. It appeared to the officers that Ellen was in the middle of making a fruit salad when she sustained her injuries and died. Now, the reason for my use of the phrase when she sustained her injuries and not when she was attacked is because officers at the scene believed almost instantly that Ellen had taken her own life. What, by stabbing herself? Mm. Right, okay. Yeah, so just wait until the autopsy report because it gets even more crazy. (laughs) So Ellen's parents, Sandra and Joshua, were called and told what had happened, and with their world shattering around them, they made the treacherous journey west in the middle of a snowstorm to be with their deceased daughter. Ellen's death had been ruled a suicide by investigators due to the lack of evidence that anyone else had been in the apartment, the fact that it appeared that Ellen had not made any attempts to flee, and because she had no defensive wounds. However, this ruling quickly changed the day after her death when her autopsy was performed. The medical examiner labelled the stab wounds on Ellen's body using letters, and he was only able to stop when he got to the letter T. Ellen had sustained 20 stab wounds to her head, neck, stomach and back. The wound on her scalp was 2.5 inches long, a stab wound to her stomach was 2 inches deep, and the wound that was caused by the knife that had been protruding from her stomach when Sam had found her was 4 inches deep. On top of these horrific injuries, she had 10 different stab wounds on the back of her neck and some reports state that one particular wound to her back was so deep that it severed her spine and likely caused brain damage. Sorry, surely there's no way that she's done this to herself at this point though with that many stab wounds? Well, yes. So the medical examiner also said that Ellen had several bruises on her on the right side of her body. Um, He said they were in various stages of resolution and that she also had bruises on her right arm, abdomen and right leg that were also noted as being in various stages of healing. So like you said, with all this astounding evidence before him, the medical examiner ruled that Ellen's manner of death had been a homicide. In his report, Dr. Marlon Osborne stated that, in particular, the knife that was still embedded into Ellen required such a degree of force that it was highly unlikely that she would have been able to inflict this wound on herself. And the ones in her back of her neck, though. I mean, can you even do that? Well, I suppose you can, Rich. Well, it's all massive points of contention. We'll kind of go through it a little bit later. Um, But yeah, I think from his point of view... It all seems, you know, to add up to be a homicide, but especially this wound in her um, 
in her stomach well his kind of like her chest her stomach abdomen area and um, that one he basically said was so deep that it would have been really hard for her to have inflicted that herself um, although we'll come across more evidence later that might suggest why she might have been able to do that um, so Josh and Sandra Greenberg were preparing for their daughter's funeral when they found out that their daughter had been murdered. Although this was, of course, shocking news to them, it did support what they felt they'd always known, that Ellen wouldn't have killed herself. Despite the police's assertions that Ellen was suffering with stress-induced anxiety from pressures at work and her upcoming wedding, and the fact that she had been seeing a psychiatrist, paired with a prescription Ellen had for antidepressants, her parents didn't believe that Ellen could have taken her own life. Unfortunately, within a few weeks, their world was to be shattered once more when Dr. Marlon Osborne did something highly unprecedented and changed the cause of death on Ellen's autopsy report from homicide back to suicide. Why? Basically, more information had come out about Ellen's struggles with anxiety as well as evidence that she'd been searching online about depression. Um, I think in addition to this, there was no other DNA at the crime scene um, and that sort of coupled with the fact that the apartment door had been locked from the inside did lead the police to believe that nobody else had been inside the apartment when Ellen had sustained her injuries. The lead detective on the case also spoke to a forensic neuropathologist and reportedly showed her a piece of Ellen's spinal cord. This neuropathologist concluded that whilst Ellen's spinal cord sheath had indeed been hit, the cord itself had not actually been severed she stated that this could have meant that, instead of inducing paralysis to stop Ellen from stabbing herself, it was possible that hitting her spinal cord resulted in her losing feeling, and as such could explain why she was able to stab herself repeatedly without stopping. But that seems to me, um, from what you've said, though, they're all such physical things. I just don't understand how someone could mentally be strong enough to stab themselves 20 times. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, but I think what this kind of forensic neuro neuropathologist was saying was that actually the stab wound that hit her spinal cord might have just numbed her body, which meant that really, um, it, I hate to use a phrase, but it would have been easier for her to stab herself, if that makes sense. I agree with you, though. I don't think that it actually um, is very... Um, I don't think that's damning evidence at all to why someone would do this to themselves. But I think that at this point, this is what the police are working on. Yeah. Um, also, kind of in addition to that, the police referenced that there were traces of prescription medication in Ellen's system, namely Ambien and Clonopin, which they said had known side effects of causing suicidal thoughts. However, they came to this conclusion despite evidence from Ellen's doctor that she hadn't ever shown any signs of having suicidal thoughts or tendencies, and despite reports stating that the traces of these antidepressants in her systems were very minimal. But this just seems as well a bizarre way to, even if you were feeling suicidal... And I mean, you don't know because you're not inside someone's head, but this seems a very strange way for someone to go about it. Yeah, it does. And do you know what? What's really, really frustrating to me is that surely this is not the point of a medical examiner. Like, it kind of feels quite unbelievable to me that he's basically spoken to the police and now kind of seemingly just changed his ruling because they've said to him, oh, well, she didn't have any defensive wounds and the door was locked. It seems very, very bizarre to me that the one person who actually examined her wounds, examined her body, saw the 20 stab wounds to her neck, her back, her abdomen, her head. It's just mind-blowing that, you know, then the police just walked in and said, oh, we think this is suicide. And then for, for whatever reason, Dr. Osborne changed his ruling. That's not the point of a medical examiner, isn't it? Isn't, isn't the point of him to tell them how she died? Yeah, I would agree. I'd, I would have thought that their evidence would be limited to the body, if you will, as opposed to all the mm. like extraneous variables. But then, I don't know, 
Surprisingly, I'm not a medical examiner. <laughs> that is very surprising. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so that is kind of where it stood. On March the 7th, Ellen's cause of death was officially ruled a suicide. Um, quite unbelievably, though, the Greenbergs claimed that they were never given a full explanation for the change on Ellen's autopsy report. And in some articles and interviews, they claim that, that the decision was made without anyone even informing them. Um, so basically, as far as they were aware, the police were out there looking for her murderer. But when in actual fact, what they'd essentially done was close the case because they'd ruled it a suicide. Therefore, her parents decided to take the case into their own hands and they paid for Ellen's autopsy report, photos of her body from the autopsy, photos of her body at the crime scene and the medical examiner's investigation report to all be released and be sent to them. Despite the heartbreak that this inevitably caused them, they reviewed all the information that had been sent to them. They saw photos of their daughter deceased at the crime scene and they knew in their hearts that she had not taken her own life. In reports, they said that Ellen was so afraid of pain that she'd even chickened out of getting her ears pierced several times. As far as I can tell, they didn't think that their daughter was suicidal, but it does seem that they were kind of of the opinion that if she was going to commit suicide, she would not have done it by stabbing herself to death. They also made comments in several interviews that, as more information came out, specifically in relation to the stab wounds on her back and the back of her neck, they felt more and more like this didn't make any logical sense. Therefore... In January 2012, a year after Ellen's death, the Greenberg sent all the information they had to a forensic pathologist in Pittsburgh named Dr. Wecht. Dr. Wecht had been instrumental in investigating many famous cases, including the assassination of John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert Kennedy, as well as the infamous case of John Bonet Ramsey. His skill set and experience was something this case needed, and so the Greenbergs worked hard to get in contact with him. Dr. Wecht looked at all the information associated with Ellen's death and he determined, quote, It is my professional opinion that the manner of the death of Ellen Greenberg is strongly suspicious of homicide. He stated the fact that she did not leave a note led him to believe it was not suicide and he also noted that the stab wounds on the back of her neck were unlikely to have been self-inflicted. The Greenbergs took this analysis to the police However, they argued that Dr. Wecht was privy to only half of the information and they refused to reopen the case. Dismayed by this, the Greenbergs decided to enlist further expert help at the advice of their lawyer, former Attorney General Walter Cohen. He helped them to secure the assistance of a former detective with 25 years' experience, Tom Brennan. Both Walter Cohen and Tom Brennan agreed to help the Greenbergs for free. Mm. From the start, the former detective Tom was very supportive He dismissed the relevance of there being no defensive wounds on Ellen, saying that in a blitz attack involving knives, many victims have no time to defend themselves. Oh, yeah. Especially if she'd been... um, I hadn't really thought of it like that, but especially, I suppose, if she'd been um, like making a fruit salad, say, and someone had to come in, particularly with a knife, you would have to respond quite quickly, wouldn't you, in that situation? yeah. Exactly. And that's exactly what he said. He said that in Ellen's case, he felt that the presence of the chopped fruit um, could support the theory that she was kind of caught off guard by her attacker. Mm. So in 2015, three years after Ellen's death, the Greenbergs found more support in the form of ex-prosecutor Guy Deandre. Guy had reviewed Ellen's case whilst officially in office at the request of a friend and had almost instantly noticed something bizarre. In the documentary titled Accident, Suicide or Murder, Behind the Locked Door, Guy explains quite clearly that there was something unusual about the blood pattern found on Ellen. 
When her body was initially found that day, she was slumped against the kitchen cabinet in an upright seated position with her legs straight out in front of her. However, crime scene photographs showed that she had a drop of blood that had run from her nose to her ear in a straight line. In his own words, blood running horizontally in a seated position, well, this just defied gravity. So it would be like, it would have gone like that if she'd have been lying down? Yes. Right, okay. And then adding to this, Dr. Henry C. Lee, a forensic scientist, also looked at the case and he concluded that it was not only the wounds Ellen sustained that raised suspicions, but also the blood found at the scene. He said that the bloodstain patterns indicated that Ellen had been standing up by the sink when she received her initial injuries. This, he evidenced by the drops of blood found on the sink, counter cabinet and the floor. Seeing as Ellen was found sat down on the floor, it seemed unlikely that she'd stabbed herself, stood up over the sink with a bowl of fruit next to her, and then turned around, sat on the floor with her back to the bottom cabinet, and then continued to stab herself. He also referenced that there were two separate bloodstains on one of the cabinets that looked as if they'd been wiped from right to left and then downwards. Moreover, blood droplets on the toe part of her Ugg boots also supported the theory that she had been stood up when she had initially been attacked. In his professional, experienced opinion... This evidence that someone else had been in the kitchen the time Ellen had died and that her body most certainly had been moved. Ooh. Both Detective Brennan and Guy Deandra agreed with Dr. Lee in that they too felt that the entire scene was amiss. The reportedly clean white towel that Ellen held in her hand, the amount of blood in relation to the 20 stab wounds and this mysterious blood on Ellen's face had both men questioning if the scene may have been staged to look like a suicide. To confirm his suspicions, Guy Deandra requested the findings of the original luminol test at the scene to see if there had been any evidence of a blood cleanup. But alarmingly, no such test had ever been done. Oh my god, is that with the say with like the ultraviolet lights and things where you see mm-hmm. if, if, if they there, didn't there was do blood one. somewhere? No, they didn't do a luminol test. I am shook. <laughs> You're going to get even more shook as we carry on. (laughs) So, determined not to be defeated by the police's shoddy work on the day of Ellen's death, the pair focused their attention on the lock that the original investigation deemed could not have been manipulated from the outside, the fact that they used to determine that no intruder had been in the flat. However, simple research by Tom and Guy confirmed that the lock on the apartment door was incredibly similar to the style that hotels use, and as such, research showed that they were very easy to manipulate. I'm never going to sleep well in a hotel room again now you've said that. (laughs) Oh no, I'm really sorry. (laughs) So the lock itself is obviously a huge factor in this case. It's described as being a swing bar lock. I have tried so many ways in my head to work out how to describe what this is and like what this looks like to you guys, but I just can't. So if you're unsure, I just Google it so you can see what it is. Do you know what it is? Can you try and explain it? Well, I'm picturing the ones in the hotels that are like a stick with a big ball on the end. (laughs) Yeah, and then there's like the flappy bit that you flap over it, like you secure over it. Yeah. Yeah, on the other side of the door. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. (laughs) Fantastic explanation. So Tom and Guy, who were investigating this, were absolutely certain that this lock could have been closed from the outside of the apartment. At this point, both men felt the original investigation was far too quick to refute the possibility that this was in fact a murder. Tom Brennan found the idea that Ellen would use this as a suicide method very unlikely and felt the severity of the wounds really brought into question whether a person could do this to themselves, especially in such a frenzied way. Really, I do think this is fairly similar to what we spoke about in the case of Lavina Johnson in so much that 
yes, it might have been physically possible for her to have attacked herself in that way. But realistically, it's completely implausible that someone would choose that method to kill themselves. Yeah, I mean, so far, I agree. Like, I, I can understand how maybe when the police walked in there, like the big lack of evidence would have been confusing for them. But actually, I just don't... I think fundamentally, like I know people self-harm and obviously do take their own lives, but I do believe that like years of evolution have given us some kind of self-preservation and I just can't imagine maybe like one stab wound or two, but I can't imagine the ability to continuously keep hurting yourself, especially like you said, like some of them are on the back of her neck. Like that's stretching mm-hmm. to then really inflict pain on yourself. And I don't know, I can't imagine that you could override your sort of, I don't know, almost historic desire in your brain to keep yourself alive. It's sort of, you know, like how you duck when someone throws a ball at you. Like, it's just, it's an innate thing, isn't it? Not wanting to, like, hurt yourself or contribute to that. Yeah, and I think, like, I know people do take their own lives, but, like, the detectives obviously thought, like, the newer ones, this would be a really strange way to do it, particularly if she's, I don't know, had access to prescription drugs or just anything. It just seems the most awful way you could do that to yourself. Yeah, it's hard to get your mind around that that would even be an option suicide, but I suppose police have seen a lot more cases. I don't know. Um, Firstly, I totally agree with you. Like, it seems like there are much less violent, aggressive, painful ways to do that if that is something that you wanted to do. I completely agree with you. Uh, with regards to the police had probably seen far more crime scenes like this. Uh, let me just tell you that Tom Brennan learnt that the police had only been at the scene for one hour before they'd left and decided that her cause of death had been a suicide. One hour. That's it. Oh my um, God. Yeah. So... <sighs> Investigating kind of further into why the manner of death had changed from suicide to homicide and then back to suicide, Tom Brennan and Guy Deandra realised that a large part of the second and final suicide ruling centred around that stab wound that was determined to have not severed Ellen's spinal column. That was the one, if you can remember, where the lead investigator had spoken to a forensic neuropathologist and showed her part of Ellen's spine, and she said that it was likely that it had caused a numbness in Ellen's senses and hadn't actually severed her spinal cord to cause paralysis or brain damage. And this statement kind of directly refuted what had been stated in the original autopsy. In an attempt to get more information about this conclusion with regards to her spine, Tom and Guy attempted to get hold of the report written by said neuropathologist as this decision had been key in overturning the initial homicide ruling. The pair scoured through the documentation relating to Ellen's death and shockingly, they couldn't find a neuropathology report that referenced anything that I just mentioned. Determined not to be defeated, the pair reached out to the police and the medical examiner's office to obtain a copy of the neuropathology report. Unbelievably, they were told such a report did not exist, what? nor could they find any evidence of an invoice for the work undertaken by the neuropathologist. This led Tom and Guy to believe that no such work had ever been undertaken, and so they decided to get answers straight from the neuropathologist herself, Dr. Rourke Adams. Tom and Guy reached out to Dr. Rourke Adams in an email, to which she replied, confirming that she had done some contract work for the ME's office in 2011, but that she did not complete a report and did not bill the office for her services. In the email, she said, quote, I would conclude that I did not see the specimen in question, although there is a remote possibility that it was shown to me. However, I have no recollection of such a case. 
So what she's saying is that she had not seen the spinal cord when she made her statement that the knife had only nicked the spinal cord sheath and hadn't paralysed Ellen or rendered her unable to continue stabbing herself. This crucial bit of evidence has literally come from essentially like a phone call and not any kind of actual examination. That is awful. So like just, yeah, like a passing opinion had such a big weight on the case. I can't believe that. That must amount to a huge police negligence at this point. Yeah, I would think so as well. I honestly would think so as well. Um, Well, this shocking discovery came five years after Ellen's death. And so, motivated by this revelation, Guy Deandra did some searching and discovered that the piece of Ellen's spinal cord that had been supposedly given to the neuropathologist was still stored at the medical examiner's office. The medical examiner, after admitting that he had changed the ruling from homicide to suicide based off of the police's insistence that Ellen had no defensive wounds, attempted to assist this new investigation into her death by allowing Tom Brennan to bring a neuropathologist into his office to examine the cord once more. This neuropathologist was called Dr. Ross. Dr. Ross concluded that one of the stab wounds had penetrated Ellen's cranial cavity and that it had severed the cranial nerves and brain. He concluded that this stab wound would have rendered Ellen unconscious. Moreover, in his official report, Dr. Ross stated, and I'll read directly from the report here, There was such evidence of strangulation. There was a mark over the front of the neck which was consistent with a fingernail mark. There were multiple bruises under the neck and in the strap muscles over the right side of the neck. The patterns were compatible with manual strangulation. Adding to this, Dr. Ross commented on the bruising on Ellen's body. He said that the pattern of bruising, in that some of them were fresh but many of them were older, showed patterns consistent with a repeated beating. This evidence seemed fairly insurmountable to Tom and Guy and to the Greenbergs, and so, armed with these findings, they decided to go after the police. Because the police had been so quick to determine her death as suicide, and by so quick, I mean literally an hour, they had obviously not taken the usual precautions that officers should take in homicide investigations. We heard about this slightly earlier with the revelation that they hadn't even bothered to do a luminal test, but further investigation by Tom and Guy showed that after they'd spent an entire 60 minutes at the scene and then left, they hadn't closed it off to stop contamination. They only started investigating this as a homicide a day later, and by that time, the chain of evidence had been broken. In 2018, one of the attorneys who the Greenbergs had hired to help them with their case, Larry Krasner, became Philadelphia's district attorney. When he went into office, they asked him if he would consider reopening the case into their daughter's death. Krasner cited conflict of interest and referred the case over to the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office, and last year, in 2019, the Pennsylvania AG did reopen the case for another investigation. God, that's so sad, though. Like, how many years on is this now? Like, eight. Yeah, like, basically eight and a half, really. God. Um, yeah, it gets even more sad, because, unfortunately, this investigation did not produce the outcome that I'm sure we were all hoping to hear next. Unbelievably, they came back with the same conclusion as the police and the medical examiner, and they determined that Ellen had committed suicide. What, even with all this new information? Yeah, so in a statement to Penn Live, uh, the AG's office determined that after conducting a, quote, thorough investigation to determine the manner of death by interviewing the chief ME of Philadelphia, the ME who performed the autopsy and having met with representatives of the Greenberg family and having reviewed information provided by the police and their attorneys, they found evidence to strongly suggest suicide. This evidence included searches on Ellen's computer for, quote, 
painless suicide, suicide methods and quick suicide. They also referenced text messages sent from Ellen to her mother a few days before she died that indicated to them that Ellen had been in, quote, serious mental distress. I cannot say for absolute certain, but I'm fairly sure the messages they are referencing here are the following. So Ellen texted her mother on January the 8th and said, I'm starting the meds. I know you don't understand, but I can't keep living with feeling this way. Nine days later, she texted her mum again and said, Clonopin helped, two exclamation marks, dot, dot, dot. Thank God. Her mum responded to this message saying, so happy. And Ellen responded saying, me too. Oh my God. A couple of weeks later, just the day before Ellen's death, her mum texted her saying, you need to see a professional. To which Ellen replied, okay, I'm trying, just scared a bit for everything. The Pennsylvania Attorney General's office felt this was enough to close their investigation. And unfortunately, they did just that in May 2019. God. So Tom Brennan said that despite this ruling, it's not over. And he said that the searches on Ellen's computer could have been done by someone else, especially considering that the scene was never closed off as a crime scene. Um, This is actually also heavily supported by the investigation report that was written on the 15th of April, just a couple of weeks after Ellen's death, in which they explicitly state, quote, There is no note found or anything indicative of suicide on the computer or in the rest of the apartment. So just two weeks after her death, they're saying in this report that there was no sign of suicidal searches on her laptop. But now, like eight or nine years later, they're saying that there is. That's very weird. Yes, it's incredibly suspicious. In October last year, Sandra and Joshua Greenberg filed a civil lawsuit against the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office and the pathologist who conducted Ellen's autopsy. Unfortunately, due to the current coronavirus pandemic, these proceedings were halted. However, a Philly Common Pleas Court judge did rule that once the courts reopened, the Greenbergs would be able to move forward with their lawsuit. There is a Facebook page called Justice for Ellen. At the time of recording, it has around 10,000 followers. Um, They post very regularly on there. So if you're interested to see where this case goes, then I would really recommend following that for updates um, and also just to raise more awareness for this case. Um, But yeah, this is not the end of the episode if you don't want it to be, although I would say that everything we're going to discuss next is like purely theories and opinion and nothing has been investigated. Um, So I think probably what you're all wondering is who did this then if it wasn't a suicide? Of course, again, we don't know uh, because the police don't even have suspects because they aren't even investigating this as a murder. Um, so please nobody sue us because we're very poor. <laughs> but I mean, do you want to hear some theories? Shall I kick it off? <laughs> yeah, I'm, as always, keen to know what you think. So um, I'm glad I got that on recording that you you value my opinions out. <laughs> um, so I'm sure it comes as no shock to any of you that Sam Goldberg, Ellen's fiance is obviously quite high up there on the list of theoretical suspects. Um, Not least because of the bruises on her body that some people, including Dr. Ross, say implies that maybe he was abusive and was beating her. Obviously, her change in behaviour nearing their wedding, the fact that she wanted to move back home, and the seemingly suspiciously timed gym session that he just so happened to attend right at the exact point she was killed. Not least because of all these things, there is a lot more evidence that seems to implicate Sam quite heavily. But was he... I'm trying to remember back what you said at the start. Um, but didn't you say it was like half an hour between him leaving for the gym session and then going back or something like that? Um, yeah, so I well, what I said was 30 to 40 minutes because it kind of varies in what report you're reading. Um, but yeah, he was only in the gym for, I think, um, yeah, kind of minimum 30 minutes, maximum 45 minutes. 
So not very long at all, to be honest. Um, not at all like slating his workout sessions, but do you know what I mean? So yeah, he he was gone for like a very short period of time. And in that time um, is when supposedly Ellen killed herself. So yeah, a very short period of time. Mm. Yeah, it does just seem strange, doesn't it? Because firstly, while well, I don't go to the gym a lot, so I wouldn't know. Half an hour doesn't seem a long <laughs> amount of time anyway. But also if that was mm. the exact moment she chose to try, that just seems really strange to me because she wouldn't really know how long he was going to be there for. I mean, I know there was a snowstorm coming in, but presumably he goes out to work and there'd be, I don't know, do you not think that there'd be other times where yeah. she might be all day before it seems to me if you're Mm. banking on someone being on for like half an hour and you were really intent on ending your life in half an hour you'd really run the risk of being interrupted and doing that oh yeah absolutely I think especially if the method is stabbing yourself to death like it's very different to if you were to take you know a lot of pills or something like that um but yeah stabbing yourself it's obviously quite well it's quite an intense thing to do anyway but yeah with the with the thought that maybe someone could come in at any moment or that your fiance could come in any moment it's it's yeah kind of scary to think about to be honest but I mean on top of that like she was just at work do you know what I mean the entire day the timing doesn't really seem right because she was at work she was sent home early she even texts one of her friends um one of her friends texts her saying like are you getting out early and she was like yeah thank god so she's obviously just like excited to be kind of going home early avoiding the snowstorm she went and filled up her car with petrol she got in and then you know a few you know but I think it's about 15 minutes later or something he left to go to the gym and it's just like, then it seems like a quick time to change your mind. Yeah, I definitely agree. And filling up with fuel seems strange. I'm not, yeah, and I yeah, know that people don't yeah. necessarily plan the exact day, etc. But if you are feeling really low, I just, regardless of whether you thought you were about to go home and do that, if you were feeling that low, I don't think I'd think, oh God, I better go get some petrol. Do you know what I mean? No, like no. when you have down days, you, you're apathetic. You want to do less, not go and think, planning ahead, oh, I need to fill up on fuel before the snowstorm. No, exactly. Yeah, you want to do less. It's exactly that. You'd rather not see people. You'd rather not go out and make unnecessary journeys or do unnecessary things. I agree with you. So let's get into the evidence that kind of implicates Sam quite heavily. So firstly, evidence came out about the presence of the security guard in that Sam told the 911 operator that he'd broken into the apartment by kicking the door down and that the security guard was with him. But in his statement, the security guard said that he hadn't left his post downstairs at any point and that he hadn't been with Sam when he'd entered the flat. Adding to this, the security guard noted to the police that he thought it was strange that Sam kept telling him that he'd been in the gym. The guard said that he repeated several times that he'd been working out, but that he was wearing boots, not trainers, and he wasn't wearing workout gear. Remember, of course, that the gym was in their actual apartment complex, so it's very unlikely that he'd go in different clothes and change at the gym and then change back into regular clothes before going back to his flat. Mm. Secondly, the door hadn't really been broken down at all. There was just one small screw missing from that inside lock. It doesn't really appear that much force had been applied at all to get the door open. Tom Brennan said that it would be almost impossible to kick down the door with a lock like that without the lock coming either off the door or off the door frame because one side of the lock was screwed to the door and the other side to the door frame. So essentially one of those secure points of contact would have broken off if force was applied in the way that Sam said he had. Uh, So Tom Brennan doesn't think that Sam kicked down the door at all. So is there any evidence that the door was locked? Well, no. And so this is like a really, really big thing. And this is genuinely something that really stands out to me. Um... 
because it's kind of why they continuously said it was suicide, right? Because they said that nobody could have got out with the door locked. Mm. But that information about the door being locked has only ever come from Sam. The security guard never checked it. Nobody else ever checked it. The only sign that it may have been locked was basically the fact that the lock was slightly broken. But I think in, in one of the articles I read, Tom Brennan kind of highly suspects that it wasn't ever locked and he thinks that someone had basically closed the door and then tugged at the lock kind of quite hard to you know break it a little bit to mimic a break in mm. um because basically the fact that the lock stayed attached to both sides of the door sort of told him that it was never locked and that the door hadn't been broken down that's really weird though that that wasn't a massive sticking point in the case because why would you just take I mean, you see it all the time, don't you? That people are like most likely to be murdered by their partners, etc. So it just mm -hmm. seems really strange in this incidence that with a highly suspicious cause of death anyway, that the police then just took Sam's word for it that the door was locked, which like you say, is kind of the sticking point of the whole case. And yet they just took the spouse's word for it that that was true. I know. I'm assuming it's because they were only there for an hour. But I mean, I don't know. I massively agree with you, though. It just seems absolutely ridiculous that they wouldn't look into that further. Because essentially what they did was, so it's like a sixth floor apartment. So um, I kind of briefly mentioned it earlier, but not very well. But basically, they just went into the apartment and they were like, oh, the front door was locked. Where's the back door? Oh, right, it's here. There's a balcony. There's loads of snow here. It's completely untouched. Nobody's left this way. Nobody could have left through the front door because it was locked. So, yeah, this must have just been her herself and no one else was in here. It's just ridiculous. Like, they're just believing him on blind faith, but I don't know why. What was their relationship like before? I mean, I'm assuming, given they didn't really investigate the possibility, I'm guessing that nobody ever mentioned that they had, like, a tumultuous relationship, Sam and Ellen, that is. Um, well, no, not really. I mean, other than the kind of like the the um, evidence of the bruising and stuff that came out, um, obviously, after she died, um, there's nothing really else to suggest that they did have a tumultuous relationship. And even Ellen's parents said that, I don't know really how they feel now, but especially at the beginning, the first few years, they didn't really suspect it like, was anything to do with Sam at all. They just they just knew that their daughter had you know been murdered and something awful had happened to her. But even they said that they didn't think it was Sam. So I don't think there was any evidence at all to suggest uh, that he was abusive or that he was anything like that. Although... I do feel like his text messages to her were incredibly aggressive. Mm, I agree. But then also you have to, I don't know, does that kind of work against um, sort of our working theory that maybe it was him? Because I think if he'd then done it, would he be that aggressive in messages to her? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. I suppose the only situation in which I think he would be is if, if he thinks that's a normal way to act, do you know what I mean? Like if he's naturally a very mm. controlling person, he might have no perspective that actually being locked out of oh, your yeah. flat isn't a reason to send what I do think sound quite threatening messages. Yeah, and like I know yeah. that, I don't know, maybe he'd come back from a tough gym session and actually just wasn't in the mood for jokes. Who knows? Maybe they're, they're not as sinister as they kind of sounded. But yeah, the only instance I can think where he would say be staging this whole thing and send texts like that is if actually he just couldn't recognize that they were quite aggressive which I think lots of people who do have very short fuses if you will I don't necessarily think mm. they're aware of their own behavior so but no otherwise I do agree with you that would be silly on his part yeah actually I think that's quite an interesting take on it um it, I get what you're saying you're kind of basically because he doesn't understand that having this short fuse isn't normal therefore he is acting how he probably would have reacted if he had been locked out yeah and how he um, thinks people not, not realizing how that looks yeah. yeah okay yeah yeah oh no that's actually a really really good point that's interesting 
So, yeah. Thirdly, in terms of on the list of all the suspicious things that he did, it took him a really, really long time to enter the apartment and call the police. Um, We kind of roughly touched on it. But yeah, it was between 30 and 45 minutes in the gym. And then it took an entire hour milling around outside, texting her to open the door and going to speak to the security guard before he eventually broke it down. And I think it seems to most people that knowing that the inside lock was, you know, only a swing bar lock and it wasn't a deadbolt or it wasn't like a lock with a key, uh, breaking it open couldn't really have done that much damage. It seems strange that he didn't try to push the door open sooner. Mm. Adding to this bizarre length of time before he broke into the apartment, he called two other numbers before he called 911. The first was to his parents and the second was to his uncle, who was an attorney. Both his uncle and his parents were on their way to see him before he'd supposedly even got into the apartment. Like, how strange is that? Oh, I can't get into my apartment. I must instantly ring my family to come and help me. Do they live nearby? No, like an hour away. So it's not like a, oh, mum, can you pop around the corner with your spare key type phone call? Yeah, and it wasn't even just one of them. It was his parents and his attorney uncle, which to me is just incredibly strange because at this point, he supposedly doesn't think that anything's happened to Ellen. I could understand if he'd been in the apartment at this point and he'd obviously seen what had happened and he needed support. I get that completely. But just basically being like, I'm locked out of my apartment, Ellen's being really like annoying, lock the door, whatever. It seems incredibly strange that that he'd call his family to come see him before he'd even called 911. Yeah, that's really weird. And like adding to that even further, the day after Ellen's death, Sam's uncle and father went back into the apartment and they told officers that they were going to get a suit for Sam for the funeral. And when they left, they left with Sam's laptop, Ellen's laptop, her work laptop and her mobile phone. And they had these possessions for two days before the police retrieved them. What is ridiculous is that this, of course, broke the chain of evidence, which means legally nothing found on them can be used as evidence now. But for some reason, the fact that she had supposedly Googled suicide methods and things like that was allowed to be used for the 2019 dismissal of her case. That's barbaric, isn't it? That's outrageous. And also just really strange in the first instance that they took them. Yeah, well, completely. Seems very, very odd to take. What's even more strange, I think, is that he didn't see a giant chef's knife protruding from Ellen's chest until the moment he goes to put his hands on her to start CPR. And what is terrible is that on the 911 call, when the operator tells him to start CPR, he responded with, do I have to? And some reports have said that Guy Deandra, who has listened to the call, said that when Sam eventually noticed the knife, he said to the 911 operator that, quote, she must have fallen on it. Would that be your immediate reaction if you saw your loved one lying on the floor with a knife sticking out of them? No, I think you'd be pretty distraught, wouldn't you? That's the other thing as well, actually. In the 911 call, he has—he is incredibly calm. And I kind of actually wasn't going to say that, and I probably shouldn't have said that, because I know that, you know, it, there is no textbook way to act in these situations. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that you would be pretty distraught. And I think even if you weren't hysterically crying or whatever, I don't think that your immediate reaction to seeing your fiancé on the floor with a knife in them is... Oh, she must have fallen on it. Also sat upright. Yeah, well, completely. That's so true, actually, yeah. What does she do? Yeah, exactly. Did she fall on it and then just prop herself back up? That's unbelievable. Yeah, very strange. So that is kind of it on my list of suspicious Sam. I mean, what do you think about all of that? Do you think that can all be kind of answered away? Or do you think that does sort of point to maybe that he isn't as nice as pie as he seems? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, when you hear it all laid out like that, I think 
hindsight or just seeing it all in one chunk, you are really like, okay, how did no one investigate this man? Like, I know they probably had a really nice marriage and I know that probably a lot of the time spouses are the first ones people investigate, but there is a reason for that because a lot of the time they do have something to do with it. And I think when mm. you look at all of that evidence in one, it's quite easy to create a narrative in which he could have done the whole thing. Like for mm-hmm. all anyone knows, he, I don't know, maybe pops in and out of the apartment a bit down to see security but actually how do we know he wasn't just sending those texts in the apartment or that maybe Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know I mean I'm guessing there's some CCTV that did verify he was at the gym in the first place but still it just seems very plausible to me that a lot of that he'd be in the most prime position to stage like the crime scene um yeah like he would have known where all the like crockery and stuff is to make it look like she was in the middle of something he'd have known how to search something on her laptop etc and his response seems really weird I agree his texts seem very strange particularly if you pair them with the bruises and I know that that could just be like two strange things that you completely get the wrong conclusion from thinking about but it does seem really odd to me that he wasn't at least a suspect in the investigation because actually he would have been able to get in and out of the apartment and yeah just make up the whole locked door thing and then in which case suddenly it's not so 100% that it's a suicide do you know what I mean like I just mm. think all of the evidence that meant they never even considered it to be a homicide actually you could quite easily get your way around if you consider Sam as a suspect but then on the flip side I think the big thing for me that's probably is clouding my judgment here is that I just can't imagine someone conflicting these wounds on themselves and that actually maybe I don't know if I did know more about this and I know obviously like some of the pathologists disagreed and particularly when they said it what did it, I can't remember even the terminology you used but something about it rupturing like the cranial nerves yeah meaning you'd have been like rendered unconscious like that to me just mm-hmm. seems like such a key bit of data because given that the knife was in her abdomen when she was found you have to assume that that damage to like the back of her head to her cranium that wasn't her last injury the knife in her chest must have been the last stabbing so for them just to completely ignore the fact that in theory this is a person who's unconscious from one wound but has somehow managed to go and inflict another wound that does seem just insane in my head that that wasn't made more of a thing out of but then equally I don't know it was overruled or denied I don't know what the terminology is by the like, appeals they went to and stuff. So then you just start to think, okay, well, maybe this is physically possible. And actually, I think like we hear about it and maybe are like, more emotional in our judgments. Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe the police actually did have mm. cold, hard evidence in front of them that made an intruder very unlikely. But like again, like we were saying, if it was Sam, then there wouldn't be any extra DNA evidence anywhere. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I just find this whole case so bizarre and I can't work out why these investigations and these appeals, kind of what they are, I guess, like why these investigations keep coming back as rolling suicide. And it it just sounds to me like a mass cover up. but I can't understand why. Like, it's not like they owe anything to Sam. Do you know what I mean? Like, he is kind of suspect number one, really, isn't he? He's really the only suspect. I find it very, very strange because... 
I'm sure they're not trying to protect him. So then who are they trying to protect in this cover-up? Are they trying to protect themselves because they did such a bad job at, you know, in, in the initial crime scene because they only looked at it for an hour and they kind of ruled it a suicide from the beginning and yeah. then they kind of bullied the medical examiner into changing it to a suicide after he'd ruled it a homicide? I think that would have to be the angle. It would If you were to start thinking, okay, why is this just keep being rejected? I think it would have to be like a point of view of like the police protect themselves. And even if they're like different departments or whatever, I think there's still kind of like a code mm-hmm. of honour, isn't there, amongst like uniform or police, etc. But still, you do wonder actually in the day where it's so easy to have so many like independent reviewers, yeah. etc. Actually, would so many people put themselves on the line because essentially there is a, there is a lot of evidence to suggest it might not be a suicide but by this point there's a lot of people who've like staked their careers on the fact that they think it is a suicide so mm. you'd I don't know you'd kind of imagine that you would get to a point where someone might say actually no this is a legitimate appeal unless maybe like the case is more black and white if you do have the full set of files in front of you but from what we've heard it's really hard to believe that that is true and that actually is very blatantly obvious to any expert it's a suicide like it seems to me there's enough people who are willing to contest the possibility that it was a murder that's honestly how i feel about it i feel like i have not said or heard or read one thing that makes me think oh okay i understand why that points to suicide there is nothing in this for me that points to suicide whatsoever like there just genuinely isn't the only thing obviously is the locked door that's the only thing that makes me think oh like i can understand why they might think it's a suicide because obviously a ghost didn't do this but what really annoys me is that fine if loads of people had said that that door was locked, do you know what I mean? If it was the police that had broken down the door, I could understand it. But they're taking mm. his word for it. That's what I just find absolutely barbaric. I don't understand that. And also, like, the um, using of her mental health, I just... That always sits a bit uncomfortably with me because oh God, I just same, think, actually... Yeah. Do you know what? She might have been seeing a therapist and she might have been on anti-anxiety medication, but that is a big old leap away from stabbing yourself 20, 20 times. times in kind of cold blood do you know what mm-hmm. I mean like she wasn't intoxicated she was just that's a really horrific horrific thing and I just think the fact that she'd been seeing someone for anxiety to me a I just find it a ridiculous stretch and b I think it's so dangerous because you're just negating what's so like anyone who dies who's had like some mental health history must have therefore had a part in it do you know what I mean I just think that is the sort of thing that really adds to stigma around people like you know she had a big job and she was about to get married there's nothing unusual about her feeling a bit anxious and stressed yeah and going to seek help for that and I just find it yeah I don't know it makes me feel uncomfortable that played such a big part in their conclusions I think for me in a way they should have taken that out of the picture and said like okay well if we didn't know that what would we think do you know what I mean I just Mm. yeah but they, to be honest, they came to a suicide conclusion before they even knew any of those things. And so I don't really think if they took it out of the picture, it would have changed what yeah, they wanted to rule it. Um, but I mm. massively agree with you. I think it's incredibly dangerous to say things like that. Um, and to, yeah, point to uh, being on anti-anxiety medication, saying that those drugs um, cause suicidal thoughts in her head. You know, despite the fact that science literally proved that she had very minimal traces of them in her body. And, you know, they very much want to go on the whole, oh, she Googled this, she sent these texts, but they're just going to kind of conveniently ignore the text message in which she said, you know, the clonopin that I'm on is really helping. So it's just bizarre. 
it's very selective. It seems yes, to me yeah. like in all the evidence, they've been so selective about what they want to pick and choose. And it seems that it's been very much a kind of tunnel vision onto what supports our initial theory, mm-hmm. which like just isn't how policing should work, surely. It should be like the conclusion comes from the evidence, not the evidence is found to support a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, without a doubt. So what happens with the civil trial then? So if... Um, or the civil case mm. if they were found to be like negligent etc can that spark off criminal proceedings or is this almost it done for the case of her death but there could be a case outside of it kind of like we saw in Yardley's case mm. I think to be honest a um, civil suit in I think what would happen is obviously they would have to investigate everything that the police had done. And I th- I would be incredibly surprised if that investigation didn't result in them then reopening the criminal investigation as well and actually seeing. Right. Unfortunately, though, of course, what they have to do first before they start investigating it as a murder is, uh, is, is classify it as a murder. Because right now it's a suicide, which is why nobody is, you know, oh, well, no one in the actual police force are trying to find who possibly did this to her because it's a closed case it's you know it's done in their eyes so um hopefully when um everything's kind of settled down and the courts have reopened and the civil suit is you know actioned hopefully at that point that will spark something in terms of the criminal investigation as well i'm I'm really really hopeful for that yeah me too and where i don't know i always ask this just of like a glimmer of hope because sometimes good things do come out of these cases but I'm guessing for the Greenbergs, that's not true. But do we know like what they're doing now? Are they still very active? Where's Sam? Mm, yeah, they're still fighting. So the Greenbergs, um, I think, I don't know why. But I, it's quite nice to me. Like they're still together. You know, like this hasn't torn apart their their marriage in the way that maybe like we see quite a lot of the time. So that's really nice. Um, they're just still fighting. They're working really hard with Tom Brennan. He's still working on their case. I mean, the guy's like, late 70s now and he's still working on this like it's amazing it's genuinely I'm so pleased that they have him and you know that they have this support system it's it's amazing for them um Sam he basically stuck with the Greenbergs for about a year after Ellen's death and then I can't really find any more information on him other than the fact that he's now totally moved on he's got another like family he has a wife and kids I'm not at all saying like he shouldn't have moved on and he didn't deserve it and I'm totally you know I don't want to kind of get into all of that I think that is kind of where he stood he's just living his life and um yeah obviously he's not at all a suspect in any kind of criminal investigation because there isn't one so in terms of his uh support for the Greenbergs that seemed to wane after a year um and that's kind of all the information that I have on him, really. Yeah, I mean, like you say, it's a difficult thing to get into. Actually, if he really was just an innocent bystander and all of this, then the most he deserves is to be able to move on with his life and find mm. happiness again, etc. And I think it would be a very painful thing. I mean, I really admire the Greenberg strength to be able to continually keep going through it day in, day out, and like living and reliving their daughter's death. And mm. I think that's a strength that actually maybe as parents it's easier to have than as a partner. Maybe that's mm-hmm. just too painful a thing to keep going through. And maybe at the point where he realised they were never going to give up, maybe he sort of felt that actually that he couldn't, he didn't have the sort of, not strength, but yeah didn't have whatever it takes to be able to keep doing that so it is a hard one Mm -hmm. um or maybe he's just guilty (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) (laughs) who knows not us (laughs) okay so yeah 
And that is it. That is the case of Ellen Greenberg. Please, please, please go follow and um, like uh, the page Justice for Ellen on Facebook. I think it would be really, really great for their family to just keep seeing support in that way that people are interested in this case and trying to keep this case alive um Mm. as always thank you so much everyone for listening um we'd love to hear your thoughts and your comments on facebook or instagram at infraction.thepod have a wonderful week everyone and we will see you next wednesday bye bye